Today I'm so excited to share an interview with you that I got to have with Andre Henry. Andre is the son of Jamaican immigrants and his sound is truly unique. Andre's music runs the gamut and I truly think that you are going to deeply enjoy this conversation. I'm Joy Dertinger and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Reggae music with Andre Henry. Andre, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk with you and hear more about this new single that you have coming out, uh, to talk music with you, um, activism with you, all kinds of things. So um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you listening, Andre Henry, Andre Henry, excuse me, is um, a musician, a writer, singer, songwriter, um, community act. Uh, activist, organizer, um, and I had the pleasure of taking um, a class with you, which was yeah. very cool. Um, gosh, it's been like almost a year ago now, Almost, I think. yeah, almost a year since we did the workshop. Yeah, that was yeah. really incredible. Um, that was an amazing experience to learn from so many people, um, yeah. both like, you know, people who were taking the workshop with me but and and in my cohort we mm -hmm. all still talk which is great awesome oh yeah. my gosh that's so great yeah like none of us were like localized in the in, in each other's immediate area but one yeah. is going to be moving much much closer to where i live now so we've already agreed that once she moves we're going to meet up and oh my have gosh. coffee so it's so cool so amazing to connect with <laughs> other people yes yeah, that's yeah. so cool to yeah. that's so great to hear oh my gosh the, it, that was so cool it was it was wonderful um, and so it's so great to like, when you go into something like that, you hope to learn something from the people who are leading and organizing the workshop. Yeah. Yes. But it's like mm -hmm. so much better when you learn from the people who are also taking this class and participating in this workshop with you, when you can share information yeah. with each other. And I loved that because I felt like I was getting education everywhere from every yeah. angle and that yeah. was awesome so um that was That's, such a delight that is so encouraging to hear you oh, know yeah I'm like, glad. um we're yeah that was an experiment you know between lauren and i you know putting together this five-week workshop and yeah wanting to share all this information that we've gotten from our experience but also like that's a part of why it's designed that way is because everyone comes into the room with something to offer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so being able to work in those groups allows space for people to bring what they offer to the table. So that's so cool to hear that you're still in touch with people and all that. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, <clears throat> it, um, it creates, I think it creates a lot of inroads too, like because of the kind of projects that we were working on as a cohort. <laughs> Um, we all ended up kind of settling on Chicago, which is where I'm from, because it was kind yeah. of like the middle, it was the midpoint for where everyone was. And right. so gave me the opportunity to like learn about organizations that already exist that I can um, partner with and support 
in this area that I previously oh, didn't know about. You know, we were addressing right. issues of, you know, police in school in Chicago, in, in schools in Chicago. And the yes. problem with that. And um, we talked about healthcare and lots of different things, but that was the one that ultimately we settled on. And yeah. I was like, this is a huge problem. It is a really huge problem in Chicago. And, you know, what am I, does anything exist? And then doing our research and finding out like, oh yeah, something really incredible already exists. Yeah. And it gives you so much to, to move forward with yes. when you practice something like that. So that was really incredible. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it was just a, a wonderful experience. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Andre, I wonder if you would uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, we know that you are a musician. We know mm -hmm. that you're a community organizer, <coughs> um, all kinds of different things. You're an artist. And so, um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about who you are and, you know, different identities that you hold. Yeah, well, um I can be awkwardly short about this. I am a musician. Um, I've been making music since I was little, mm. you know, starting writing songs in grade school, like second grade, oh, you wow. know, started yeah. writing songs. Yeah. Uh, Cause my, my father is a reggae musician and an activist. My mother um, was in kind of like a social entrepreneur. I mean, that sounds fancy now cause it's like a term that we have, but not one of those like social entrepreneurs that has like a lot of money just like yeah. she saw needs in her neighborhood she started businesses to help vulnerable communities mm. you know yeah yeah um but you know they're both they're both from jamaica <clears throat> yeah. so grew up in a house around a lot of music and a lot of um you know seeing my parents try to help people a lot yeah. you know yeah. um in their own ways so i think i picked up on that um mm. I also am a writer. I've been writing about racial justice and social justice for, I think about six years now, um, five or six years. I think it was like 2015, 2016, I really started um, writing more about racial justice mm. um, during the height of, or a wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. around that time. Yeah. And um, I stumbled into community organizing through that process as well. You know, where my, I guess, I never really wanted to call myself an activist, you know, but mm. like, I, I guess that's what they call it now, you know, yeah. or have, have called it for some time when you're like, oh, I want to do something about that, right? Mm -hmm. So I started writing and didn't expect to really, you know, like lead in that space, like with planning protests and all that kind of stuff. But mm. Here I am now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what ended up happening. So <laughs> yeah, that is what ended up happening. Yeah. I don't think anyone really like you know. I don't think most people plan to become activists when they're kids, right? It's yeah, no, probably something not. Something happens. Yeah. Something you're affected by some you know social injustice and mm -hmm. you're compelled into the work. So I mean that's yeah. how I usually you know sum things up. I'm a musician, I'm a writer, and a community organizer. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So now I know that probably this is the thing that most people at least at least um, knew you for in the beginning, which was carrying around a boulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about you when you were doing that. I didn't know 
who you were until oh, yeah. like a few years ago. So you <laughs> you had set the boulder down and <laughs> and I it took me I don't know why it took me this long to figure out that you hadn't done that um, oh, because I kept uh, seeing photos of the boulder and I was like, what is going on with this? Boulder? What is that? <laughs> what is the boulder? Um, you know, and then finally I was like, oh, that's what. Oh, pay attention, Joy. Um, <laughs> but for those of those, those of us who who don't know, um, tell us a little bit about that, if that's OK with you. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I started. So I, I did start lugging a boulder around the Los Angeles area mm -hmm. in 2016 mm -hmm. after I watched, you know, with the rest of America, I watched a black man by the name of Philando Castile uh, bleed to death on Facebook Live. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in Stone Mountain, you know, where the legacy of the Confederacy is very strong. It's mm -hmm. where the largest Confederate monument in the country still is, you know, yeah. on the side of Stone Mountain. So I, I bring that up to say I've never had the luxury of believing that racism was not a problem, mm. you know. Yeah. But I didn't really understand <clears throat> how I didn't understand what people meant when when we say systemic systemic racism mm -hmm. until 2016. And part of that is because when I watched Philando Castile die, I said, you know, I'm tired of first off watching these kinds of things mm. and hearing these kinds of stories. I'm tired of feeling infuriated and helpless by hearing these kinds of stories. So I need to, you know, figure out some way to literally, uh, I, I said, I need to find some way to invest my body in the struggle for racial justice. And a few weeks after that, I had like this really weird mystical experience that I'm not going to go into, but it was like, <laughs> it is, it's weird. I'm always awkward about it because I'm not really a woo-woo kind of person mm -hmm. and it's a very woo-woo kind of story. <laughs> but let's let's just say that it was like this moment of like very like intense inspiration mm. where I saw myself, you know, um, I saw myself with this boulder and uh, on this boulder it was white and it was, you know, it was written on, it, written on it were all these different social injustices <clears throat> like um, mass incarceration and the names mm. of you know, police victim, uh, police violence victims and all that kind of stuff. And when I came back to my senses, I felt like I'm really supposed to do it. I felt compelled to do it. And so I did, you know, I, I found the the heaviest boulder I could manage and I lugged it around on a wagon with me for about six months, wow. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I kept it with me for years. You know, it was mm -hmm. in my car, you know, it was in my apartment, all that kind of stuff. And I, I lugged this around to show Pete, to demonstrate, like, this is what it feels like mm. to kind of be living in a world where there is this kind of low grade hum of contempt for your people. Yeah. Right. Mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew you had done it for a while. I didn't realize it had been, you know, six months. That's a long yeah, time. It, it, yeah, it was, it was a while. And yeah. at first I took it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And someone challenged me and they said, like, who needs to hear this? Like, mm. who is this for? And at the time I was still very much involved in church. And I, I, had a, I felt like <clears throat> eventually I did feel like it was, it was church 
mm. church folks that needed to. So mm -hmm. I, I can't remember how many months it was just Sundays. I took it to whatever church I was playing the piano at or whatever, mm. you know? Yeah. So like when I would go and lead music at different places, I lug this boulder up on stage at church at whatever wow. church I was at yeah. and play or lead worship and, and drag it down, you know? It was interesting because like nobody really said anything to me about it. You I was know? just like, going to ask, like, did people approach you about it at all? Not really. I mean, wow. a couple of times. For the most part, not really. Like you would have thought that like everybody loved a boulder to church that Sunday. It was, like, <laughs> it's just like the most normal shit ever, you know? <laughs> you know? Uh, no, people didn't really didn't really say anything to me about it, really. And then I got like some stupid comments here and there or some sure. insensitive comments here and there. Yeah. You know? But for the most part, not not really a whole lot of conversation. And then a couple of times, you know, obviously there were some folks who got it right. And mm. those there are some folks who got it and they approached me and, you know, we talk about, you know, what was going on in the country at the time or, you know, just. Yeah, about racism in general or whatever. Yeah. 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 Wow. Now, that image is on. A, the image of the boulder is on um, it's the album cover for some of your art, uh, for some of your music, for yes. how long. Um, and, oh, it's it's on that one. I don't know why I thought that there was... For some reason, I thought I had seen it as the cover art for um, the original. It doesn't have to be this way. But now, no, no it, that is it not... It wasn't on there, and I, I'm sure that I thought about it, yeah. You know, and I, I don't know, like it took me a long time to even put the boulder on anything with the music because, mm. all right, we live in this really weird, like capitalistic society. And yeah. it's like, okay, like, I remember someone was like, you should put it on a t-shirt. And it's like, you want to wear that? <laughs> 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 you know, like, I don't know. Like, it's kind of Look, if you weird. put anything on a t-shirt, we will wear it. <laughs> we will all that that's this weird thing that i feel like americans have this infatuation with stuff on t-shirts if you that's if we like weird. it and it's on a t-shirt we will wear it and now the irony is that like we did create a how long t-shirt so now the boulder is on a t-shirt but at the time when it was just oh, like just put the boulder on a t-shirt by itself it mm. was just kind of like i don't know you yeah. know it felt weird so i just didn't and i didn't really put it on many things mm. Um, but then, so, and I think this is a, a great way to, when, however you want to get into the music, but I yeah. think that with, <clears throat> so, so let me just tell you a little bit about my story with music yeah. and then I'll come back like the boulder because mm -hmm. by the time I had written how long, um, I had kind of taken a break from trying to really sell a lot of music, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been making music for a long time. Like I said, I started writing songs in grade school. Yeah. I found out Bob Marley got paid to make songs in fourth grade and was like, oh, like that's a career. I want to yeah. do that. Yeah. Like that's I want the career choice, right? I moved to New York City after college and fell into the company of like songwriting legends. Like mm. I have a couple of mentors who wrote like some of the biggest songs in R and B and pop music. You know, today they wrote for Ray Charles and Whitney Houston and, wow. you know, um, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, all these people. Right. So by the time I got to L.A. where I was where I wrote How Long, I was an award. I was an award winning singer songwriter, mm. but I was very frustrated <laughs> about like 
how, you know, dealing with the music business because another another part of the music business is that, you know, a lot of folks who are industry people have this idea that people don't want to listen to music that has a strong message or Mm. a political message. Mm -hmm. And so as a black man, you have all these people putting pressure on you to over-sexualize you and say, like, you should be writing, you know, these, like, you should be writing all the songs that everyone wants to go to bed to, which is an actual mm. quote of somebody. Oh, no. You should, be, you should be writing all the sexy love songs people want to go to bed to. Um, oh, that's... <laughs> and so, like, and, and one of these guys was, like, really trying to sleep with me, right? Like, this older, super producer, oh. legendary songwriter is just, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I got really turned off by the music industry. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and because I didn't feel like my career was really going anywhere in that way... I just kind of settled into like, I'm going to get a master's degree. Mm. I'm going to go become a professor somewhere, you know, I'll still make music, you know, because I love to, Sure. but, but maybe that won't be my career. And then the black lives matter movement completely wakes me up to what we mean by what we say when we say systemic racism. Mm. Right. And then I'm on the street protesting, you know, and volunteering with the local black lives matter chapter. And um, I remember it was after the Charleston shooting in 2015. I said, well, um, you know, I want to do something. You know, what do I have? Well, I have this talent to make music. I'll write some songs. So I wrote some songs. They were not very good songs. <laughs> <laughs> they just weren't. Oh, no. <laughs> they, just, they just weren't very good. You know, I liked them, sure. you know. Yeah. But they didn't really connect with with people in the way that, you know, songs have the power to do. Mm. And I could get into all, why, but anyway, so I tried it and then I got frustrated all over again. Mm. And um, I was like, all right, forget it. I'm just focused on these things. So then mm. I watched Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live. I say, I've got to invest my body in the struggle for racial justice. Mm. I lug a rock around <clears throat> Los Angeles for six months. And the next thing you know, like, I've graduated from seminary, not sure if I believe in God anymore. So that so whatever I got that degree for, I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to use it. You know. So I'm working at J. Crew. Oh my and, god. And I'm I'm standing on the floor at J. Crew because you know they don't let you sit down because oh. uh slavery. Um and oh. I've I've got this um I've got this like tag, this like there's a tag that when you're gonna when someone calls and they say they want to put an item on hold, you gotta get mm. this little tag and yeah. put their information on and hang it up. Yeah. All right, so I'm standing in the back, no one's coming in, slow day, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, these this melody starts, this melody comes to me. It just mm. like it just hits me in the head. Mm. And as quickly as I can, I grab one of these little tags, these hold tags and a pen, and I start writing, he was alive for just a few days, mm. but he scared someone at the park with his little toy gun, Mm. little baby boy and a threat. Yeah, we cry for him, but we don't have many tears left, Mm. right? And that's how how long came to me. And so it reminded me of like this season that Leonard Cohen talked about when he said that there was like two years where he didn't write any songs. Mm. And when someone asked him about it, he said, I just needed to experience life, you know? I need to experience more of life. And I think that I went through a similar season of just kind of like having these experiences of 
not just not just even stumbling into the Black Lives Matter movement or lugging the boulder around, but I also really started studying systemic racism really deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, in a couple of years, I would start studying, you know, nonviolent struggle really deeply. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And even meeting people who led revolutions around the world and stuff like that, and you know, people becoming my mentors that have had that kind of, you know, that kind of experience. And now that was coming back to me in the form of melody and lyrics and song. Mm-hmm. So I wrote um, How Long, I wrote Delusional, and I wrote Playing Hooky uh, between 2016 and 2017. And I remember feeling very differently about these songs than I did about the ones I wrote in 2015. <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, no, I feel like I definitely liked them more. I felt like they were better, but it felt like I was learning how to sing about my life as a black person, mm. like sing about my life in this black body in the world, which I didn't know how to, I didn't have a lot of practice doing before. I wrote a lot of love songs before, mm-hmm. a lot of romance, you know. Um, but now I was being able to figure out ways to put the uh, police brutality to melody. So I think we got onto this, like, about just talking about putting The Rock on mm. the cover for How Long. Well, Juneteenth yeah. came around last year, and I finally had a recording for How Long. Remember, I wrote that song in 2016, 2017, somewhere yeah. around there. <clears throat> finally had a recording for how long and I was holding on to it like okay like we're gonna put this out you know Mm -hmm. the boulders an essential part of the story you know it makes sense now I mean you you just heard what the boulders all about so I think it makes sense for this song you know and then I think it was the it was shortly after Breonna Taylor was murdered Mm. I I, I have a trouble with the timeline Breonna was murdered before George Floyd, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay, then it must have been after George Floyd. Okay. It must have been right after, because it was, because Juneteenth was coming up. Yeah. There were just so many murders. I was just going to say, it's really sad that we can't keep track because there are too many. Yeah, it, it was something happened that week of Juneteenth mm-hmm. where I saw people in my social circle on the internet mm-hmm. that were really grieving something that had happened and George Floyd was near the end of May so something else had to have happened that week yeah because I saw people in real grief and I just felt like and this song this song is for this moment Mm. and I think that's actually how the boulder ended up on it was this was the easiest way for us to create some artwork really quickly because I wouldn't have to ask a designer (laughs) Uh, yeah well that makes sense though like if you're yeah. if you're just trying to get it out there, then like let's just hurry up and and do it. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure I made that design. Like I went into <laughs> Canva. <laughs> I went into Canva. I took a picture of the boulder, slapped it on there, and wrote the stuff on there, and then was like, "All right, here we go." That's great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I have yeah, I have it pulled up right now. That's great. <laughs> Sometimes that's what you gotta do, though. When you're like you're an artist, is like, okay, well, this isn't necessarily the type of art that I normally make, but I need something to go along with what I'm releasing. So there. Yeah. Ultimately, like, and we had this conversation with my team. It's like, it's hard living in the kind of society that we do, where everything is commodified and everything yeah. is, you know everything has to everything tends to follow these rules of right like 
how you create and sell a product, right? And so we have a balance here where it's like, yeah, I've got to eat. And so like, I would love to create things that make enough money so that I can do that. But also like, this is a way that I'm expressing myself. And this is also a way that I'm serving people, right? Mm -hmm. So we had a whole marketing plan set out for this single. (laughs) And that whole thing was disrupted because we were just like, no, this is for the people. So, Mm. you know, we know that by releasing it this way, it may not get as many streams and likes and shares but this is the time that we see people in our actual community that are grieving and this is the way that we're going to participate in this movement you know like i always say everyone has a role to play in Mm. social movements everyone has a role to play in racial progress and in that week out my role as an artist was to offer something to people who were lamenting to uh, give them the space to do that. And I did get calls from, you know, some of the most influential organizers in the country who listened to that song. (laughs) And were just like, thank you you for that song. So, I mean, it doesn't have a million streams, but it has a few streams from people who really needed it at the time. And I think that's what's really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's why we make art, right? Like you, you talked about how you were in grief over yeah. Philando Castile and his his murder and and that's how you wrote the song and that's yeah. how you know and that's how it is for so many people that's why we make art and it's why we experience art it's when that's when we need it and yeah. um so yeah i think that that is but what you're describing is it, it is like the plight of of artists especially <coughs> like you know, as you know, the plight of black artists of yeah. like, I have made this and it is it is worth it, it has value in the sense that like and it, ha- it has value because it, it does. But it also has value in the sense that it's reaching people. It's touching people. Yes. It matters to me. And yet, how do I do this in such a way that like now I have to somehow ascribe uh, some level of like economic value, right? Because right. I have to live, right? Which is impossible, right? 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 Like, I mean, this is this is fetishism entirely. Yes, because like, because <laughs> there, there's no objective there's no objective price that you can put on something like that. No, but, no. But yeah, but yeah, I mean that that definitely is a huge part of it, and I think that like I recently saw one night in Miami. I don't know if you've seen the the um. So it's like it's it's on Amazon now. It's based on a stage play that imagines what Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, and gosh, I'm forgetting the other guy because he plays football. I'm not a sports ball person. Oh, I don't um, know but, either. But they were all in Miami together one night, and this play imagines what they were talking about. And Sam Cooke and Malcolm X have this kind of argument, like in in this apartment, about like what Sam Cooke is doing with his music, and Malcolm X is trying to push him and mm. say like you should be like you should be you have all this influence you have this talent you should be using this to put our to help advance our struggle mm. and now they do this fictitious thing where Malcolm X, Malcolm X puts on Bob Dylan's song Blown in the Wind yeah. and makes Sam Cooke listen to it and Sam Cooke is like um, inspired to write a change is going to come based on that mm. which that that part is true that Sam Cooke did write a change is going to come 
after being inspired by Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Mm. But whether or not Malcolm X introduced that record to him, that's mm-hmm. the part where like they're kind of just imagining that happened that night. Right. <clears throat> but I remember feeling really emotional seeing that scene and that argument because there is this thing where I think people think of art as just entertainment, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's what it's supposed to do. Right. So when I listened to like, or when I went looking the other day for Bob Marley's music on Spotify, doing some research, mm-hmm. because I'm leaning more into, I mean, my, my music has had a reggae, has a hint of reggae music for a few years now, because mm-hmm. I, like I said, my dad is a reggae musician. Yeah. But I'm really leaning into it for the new records. Mm. You know, as you can hear, as you heard on the one that you I did. I was, I, yeah, I was like, this is a <laughs> yeah. different song entirely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, completely different it's from completely the original. Completely I mean, different. Although the first one is reggae, but it's it is, more but it's electronic. Yeah, it's more electronic, and it's more it's more like reggae music on a spaceship, right? <laughs> is the first one. Yeah, <laughs> which is exactly what I wanted. Like yeah. when I think about how I'm going to write songs, mm-hmm. I constant I do ask myself a lot, like what does reggae music sound like on Mars in the year 3033? 30, you know what I mean? Like, that's how I come As up we with. all do. We all yes. ask ourselves this question. <laughs> you know, I try to do that. Yeah. But, um, but you know, when I, when I went looking for where Bob Marley's music is, you know, what, mm. what people are using Bob Marley's music for, right? Mm. And I find it on, you know, beach day playlists and Sunday fun days and all this other kind of stuff, really? right? And it's like, Bob Marley is, I mean, he does have his, you know, everything's going to be all right songs and sure. one love, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But, I mean, Bob Marley is a very political artist. He's a very political musician and songwriter yeah. and comes from a very politicized context in what he's doing, yeah. you know. <clears throat> and um, I think that that speaks to the way that things are kind of compartmentalized for people because, you know, people think of music as this is just something to consume for my own entertainment, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that that does make it a bit challenging, you know, for artists to participate in 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 social movements to the degree that they could. Right. Mm. And when people think about my work, it it makes it difficult for them to engage it in its entirety and to see it wholly. But um, and the the irony about that, I think, if this is truly ironic, let's see, because we like using that word, and I don't know if I just use it correctly. But I think the irony of this is that artists are so involved in social movements throughout history, right? Yeah. Like, my mentor, Serja Popovich, um, one of my mentors, Serja Popovich, she was a bass player in a band in Serbia mm-hmm. before he started the revolution that's, that um, toppled Slobodan Milosevic. And the re- the way that he was convinced or convinced to start doing that work mm-hmm. was he saw a band playing outside in the street in Belgrade and they were singing this song about the war. And they said, um, if basically now I don't speak Serbian, so, you know, or whatever language they speak there. Yeah. So I, I don't know exactly what it said in uh, how to say it in Serbian, but it translates to something like, if we are, if we're too busy fighting the dictator's war, when will we find time to fuck? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's and amazing. That, <laughs> and that, and Serge seeing the band in musical protest 
yeah. is what inspired him to begin organizing. Mm. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. I, that's so interesting. Um, my uh, so my spouse has been in grad school for the second time now. He he went to grad school, and yeah. he's in grad school again to get his second master's. Um, yeah. And he was uh, for one of his classes. He you know how to write like this really big paper. Well, what I consider to be really big papers, like twenty pages. I think that's big paper. <laughs> um, and they they were kind of centering the class around, um, technically in the English department, but I I think it was about like ethics and um, and uh, like civil movements and social justice mm -hmm. and all of these kinds of things, right? And so yeah. my husband is an artist. And um, he decided to like center his paper around um, music in social movements and, and how that all comes together and the That's way that exciting. music drives it and supports it and how, yeah, yeah it all intertwines. Um, and it was funny because he's listening to all of this music, right? And I'm coming through and some of the songs I had I had heard before, but had never stopped to like listen to yeah. them. And he was playing them so much mm -hmm. um, that as I started to hear them, I was like, "Oh my God! I've I've heard these songs since I was little, but I've never really stopped to pay attention to the lyrics." And they're yeah. they're they're subversive to our culture. Yeah. Like they're extremely extremely um you know they're they're a really like scathing commentary on yes. our culture and yes. i and, and other cultures too like other social constructs that were happening in other in other cultural settings um yeah. some of them being like bob marley um and bob dylan and um so so many other musicians uh and for some of them, I was just um, shocked, I think, that I had never, well, I probably shouldn't have been shocked, but I, I was like, that's what this is, so song is about? Because right. we don't always pay attention to that. And it's no. really interesting that you bring up, you know, Bob Marley and um, Three Little Birds and, and these are yeah. the songs and One Love and these are the songs that, uh, you know, culturally and, and like, I guess I should say in the U.S., it's I don't think it's necessarily how everyone listens to the music, but it's how white people in yeah. the U.S. listen to it. <laughs> it's like, cool, there he's, I know two songs by Bob Marley, and right. I'm good. Right. And, and, you know, and knowing nothing else about right. him or his music. And the more that my spouse wrote about it, the more um, I I was like... Wow, you know, um, it's fascinating because for so long we have, th I, I used to think when I was younger, like music is, is mostly just about like vapid nothing. Yeah. Like yeah. you listen to it purely for the enjoyment <coughs> of it. And that's, you know, and I love music. It makes us yeah. feel things. Yeah. But, um, you know, we can 
feel things and have like absolutely ridiculous lyrics that don't really matter and don't really mean anything um and then the older i've gotten and the more i've been exposed to and then started um intentionally listening to music that had more meaning behind it was when i i realized like this isn't a new thing right right like this is something that's been going on for ages and um listening to nina simone and her music and realizing that like oh oh my Mm -hmm. god yeah yeah she wasn't fucking around at all (laughs) 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 like like here we go and (laughs) realizing um so i you know it was the same kind of thing like growing up hearing music um but only you know and and hearing a wide variety of music but definitely <laughs> only certain songs by some artists like yeah. definitely yeah. only like what uh white families would consider like safe songs like yeah. because yeah. it was too risky probably to play something that could radicalize <laughs> their children um, yeah. And well, you know, yeah. what's interesting is like black art, as far as it's been as far as it's been consumed by the white world, mm-hmm. has often been, you know, kind of this thing where it's kind of like a shut up and sing mentality, yeah. right? Like yeah. they they didn't even even during the height of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. they wanted black people to entertain them, to sing for them, to produce, to dance for them, and all the kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but didn't want black people to, you know, challenge the racial hierarchy, right, mm-hmm. in, a, in America. And I think there's still a bit of that here, you know, yeah. there's still a bit of that in our culture today where that's what that's what people still desire. And to, now I, I wanna say expect, but <clears throat> they shouldn't have expected that because black artists have been challenging that, you know, from the start, right? Yes. Like, yeah. you know, you had like, and I think it was James Brown, like, he refused to perform in Georgia because of, you know, segregation and stuff like that. You know, you had different protests like that. But there still is kind of that attitude that pervades. And so what I notice what happens with people like Bob Marley is the same thing that happens with something like with someone like Dr. King, right? Yeah. When someone says when when white people summarize Dr. King's work, they say, well, Dr. King was just about love and bringing us all together. Mm. And I'm like, no, Dr. King was about crippling the the crippling the operations of an oppressive society mm-hmm. through nonviolent struggle mm-hmm. that's a direct quote from him you know, <laughs> you know that's that's what he said he wanted to do right he said he wanted to cripple the operations of an oppressive society through yeah. nonviolent struggle yeah and uh, you know and i hear so there's a poet there's a jamaican poet named muta baruka mm. and he's a rastafarian poet and he's very popular and one of the things that makes him so popular is that he hasn't worn shoes in the last 40 years. So everywhere he travels, wow. he travels the world barefoot. You know, he goes around barefoot. He hasn't worn his shoes. So wow. anyway, he I was just watching a video of Muta Baruka the other day. And Muta Baruka was saying, you know, that right now, you know, even you hear a lot of Rastafarians, you know, you hear a lot of one love, one love, one love. But Bob Marley himself, you know, and... 
not before I even go any further, I'm not saying Bob Marley founded Rastafarianism for those of you who are listening, just a prominent figure, right? <laughs> so, but he's quoting Bob Marley when he says one love and he's doing it a bit, you know, frust- in a bit of a frustrated tone. Mm. And because he's saying that when Bob Marley was even the one who sang one love, he also was taking speeches from Haile Selassie, the, the Ethiopian emperor at mm-hmm. the time, and Marcus Garvey, quotes from Marcus Garvey, and turning them into songs. Mm. So his song, War, when he sings, until the philosophy that hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war right when mm, he sings that yeah. that is an ex- that is that is a direct he just literally took a part of Haile Selassie's speech at the UN wow and sang it mm. that's it mm. he didn't write those lyrics mm. <laughs> <laughs> he he took one of Haile Selassie's speeches and sang it yeah over a reggae beat and in that same song he sings we africans will fight for black liberation so what Muta Baruka is, he brings that up to say, like, you all are saying one love, one love, one love. Mm-hmm. But Bob Marley is saying we Africans will fight. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> right? You see the difference between these two messages. Yeah. And that's the thing that happens with, I think, just black freedom fighters in general, is mm. that once we're dead, <laughs> <laughs> once once we're dead, you know, then the work, the radical content of their work mm. can be gutted and revised and whitewashed yeah. so that it is consumable, right? And mm. so we see that with Dr. King, right? Like yeah. that God awful Super Bowl commercial where they used his, one of his speeches to sell a Jeep or something like mm. that, or some kind of, some kind of SUV. They, and I, we know that Dr. King, like, was a, Dr. King was an anti capitalist, yeah. you know. He criticized consumer culture and commodity, you know, not just commodities, but just the consumer culture that convinces people that they need certain commodities to be happy. He was vocal, Mm. vocally, you know, critical of that. Mm -hmm. And here goes his here goes one of his speeches taken out of context to promote or sell trucks. Mm. Right. And let's not even ask what the anti-racism practices of that company are. Oh, my God. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want (laughs) to. I don't know. I don't think we even want to know, like, how many black people are on the board? How many black people are in leadership? Are black people being paid an equal wage to Mm. their white counterparts in this in this company? We don't even probably want to ask those questions. Right. 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 We see the same thing happening with Bob Marley, right? People think that Bob Marley's music is just, and not just Bob Marley's music, but reggae music in general, right? Yeah. This is for, this is for the barbecue. This is for beach day. This is for smoking weed and chilling, mm-hmm. which I'm glad that that music can be done. You know, like when I listen to Chant Down Babylon in the morning, come make we chant down Babylon one more. No, come make we burn down Babylon one more time is the mm. first, you know, the first thing it says. Yeah. But the groove is just so easy and light and happy. Yeah. I love that juxtaposition. Yeah. And I love that it makes something that is, I mean, come on. If white people, if people who really, let's, let's, let's get a little bit more theoretical. I think mm. if people who really believe that they're white, not just people who inhabit bodies that are coded as white in the mm. society, mm-hmm. but people who really think that they are white and need to think that they are white because they love the superiority context, complex, mm. understood what that line, come make we bundon Babylon one more time actually meant, 
they would be in fear. They'd be furious with it. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. You know. Um, and I love that something that incendiary and revolutionary can be put to like this sunshine, happy, you know, groove mm. because it does make it a lot more pleasurable for you, for me to make my tea while that thing is, you know, playing in the background <laughs> in the morning. Like it makes it more enjoyable. Yeah. It's um, enjoyable for me. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that this gets into sometimes, you know, white people don't always recognize that they're not the primary audience mm. of all of the work that they consume. Yes. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think that makes complete sense. Um, especially, you know, in my personal life, uh, I, <laughs> I was so excited. I, I am still so excited to talk with you about reggae music, about, you yeah. know, uh, Jamaican culture and, you know, it, British imperialist, uh, control and influence and all of these things yes but i told my spouse i was like well i don't know anything about reggae music (laughs) and he said (laughs) and and he said does that matter (laughs) yeah i mean when you're the interviewer you don't have to yeah (laughs) well yes but also i was like he was like well i don't think that matters but if it'll make you feel better you can listen to some you could listen to reggae music in preparation and so for context um i'm a linguist i don't work as a linguist right now but i'd I'd love to someday work as a linguist um and be in that line of work again but um obviously uh i don't even want to say jamaican english but it's because it's more of like a pidgin language um what's that Patwa. Patwa. Yes, thank you. I could mm-hmm. not remember. Um, yeah. So I was like, I obviously do not, I don't speak Patwa, but I know just enough of like yeah. kind of decoding languages to know that something is being talked about here that <laughs> I don't understand. Like this is an, an experience that I cannot grasp, right? And yeah. so I, was, I kept telling my spouse, I was like, I'm listening to reggae music, but I don't understand it. And he was like, well, of course you don't understand it. You speak like American English. Of course you don't understand it. And I was like, that's not yeah. what I mean. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's different um, in the sense of like, like you said, it's not uh, like, uh, what's the word I'm like? like, it's not tailored for me. It's not right. made right. For me, right. it's made for, like, that doesn't mean I can't listen to it and I can't learn from it, but it wasn't right. created for me. Yeah, because the center of gravity, if you're, especially if you're listening to, like, classic Jamaican reggae, like, the, yeah. the center of gravity is about what's happening in Jamaica. Right, right. right. And, and so if you don't understand what's happening in Jamaica and to... Jamaican people, and and in some cases, if you don't know what's happening to Rastafarian people at that mm. time, mm-hmm. then then it's hard maybe to to grasp in some ways. Now, here's an interesting thing, which I feel like we should come back to that. But before yes. I do, I want to go down, down this little rabbit trail. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is that, <clears throat> you know, um, Bob Marley had a manager named Chris Blackwell, mm. who um, he Chris Blackwell. So Chris Blackwell knew that Bob Marley and the Whalers. They wanted to get, they wanted to break into the American R&B scene because reggae music actually is Jamaican soul music. 
Mm. And it's very, it's very much based on, uh, we're not based, it's very much related to American R&B music. It's like the Jamaican version of soul music. And so when you listen to, so it developed like this, there was ska music. Yes. And then ska developed into rock steady mm. and rock steady developed into reggae. Mm. And so if you go back and you listen to traditional ska music comes out of Jamaica, mm. it sounds a lot like classic R&B music with just the chink, 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 yep, chink, you yep, know, that, that's that it. it sounds a lot like, yeah, yeah, it just sounds, and some of the vocal stylings and things are very similar to classic R&B music hmm. because it was just the Caribbean style of doing R&B music, right? Mm. Um, and so, so that's kind of where that comes from, but I, I think then I can circle back to kind of the point of the locus of what's happening depending on what you listen to. What did you go back and, what did you listen to? I literally went on Spotify and yeah. searched reggae classics. I'm not kidding okay. you. So I was yeah. listening to, yeah, like, um, like the, like a lot of names that I don't personally know yeah. how to pronounce. So I'm That's not going to try. Uh, <laughs> I'm, wondering, I'm wondering which um, Spotify playlist you found. Cause there's a, there's a really good classic reggae playlist on there that starts yeah. with, Gosh, I can't remember what the name of the song is because just numbers, but it's like something uh, like 57, 48 or something like oh, that. Oh, no, I, I, this one starts with Dreamland by Bunny Whaler. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. and yeah. lots of, like, there's the uh, the Paragons, Bunny Whaler, Rupee Edwards, the mm -hmm. Ethiopians, um, Boris Gardner, the Love People, yeah. uh, so, so many different artists that I personally had never heard of. Yeah. Um, but I... I was listening to it and I, you know, it was exactly like you said uh, before when you said if you're listening to like classic reggae music, the the center of gravity in that is very different yeah, <laughs> from it's, what, it's Jamaica. yeah, yeah, it's Jamaica. It's, it's not yeah. something that I can relate to <laughs> in uh, the Midwest, <laughs> Midwest United States. Oh, okay. So this is why I brought up Chris Blackwell's because, yes. um, Chris Blackwell didn't believe that Bob Marley and the Whalers could break into the black American soul circuit. Mm. And so he intentionally, on Bob Marley's record, Exodus, he intentionally brought in white rock and roll musicians. Really? So that he, so that he could market the music to white college students. Right? Wow. Which worked. <laughs> yeah, really I was going to say, I, it worked. It worked because there, how many, how many white guys do you know that that think they love Bob Marley. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like many. To smoke weed to his music, right? I know. So he was right about that, but this was uh, this was also a source of frustration for Bob Marley because yeah. Bob Marley is singing about black liberation and he wants to deliver this message to his people about black black liberation, mm -hmm. but you have all of these white people who don't even understand what he's saying mm -hmm. that are listening to the music and they're one love one heart, let's together, let's get together and feel all right and they're not about black liberation. Mm. How many how many of those white guys that you know that think they love Bob Marley are also racists? Right, I right. Mean, like, like it's the Venn diagram is a circle. You know, <laughs> it's a circle. <laughs> so, you know, that that is, I mean, that is just, that, I said that, I feel like that was kind of ironic that, like, there was this very intentional effort to actually market this music to white people, yeah. right? But then if you really then but then to hear you say like, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about reggae music. I went to listen to it. I'm like, I don't really know what's going on here. Yeah. 
was like, it is beautiful. I'm I I like I will not negate that in any way. It is beautiful. <laughs> it is a beauty that I personally I I cannot translate it. Yeah. Well, you know, I do think that I do think there's something to be said just about first off the aesthetic of yeah. radio music. Oh my that is universal. Yes. Right. That, you don't have to necessarily know everything that's being said mm-hmm. to to get it. You know, because you can get into the groove of it, into the vibe of it. And that's important. Mm-hmm. What I would say, though, is that <clears throat> here's the opportunity that, that I think people are missing. And this is where, like, my story kind of connects with it, too, because I'm a Caribbean person. Yeah. I grew up in a Caribbean household to Caribbean immigrants to the Americas. And, you know, because I was born here and I was raised here, I know a lot about the Black American context because that's been my lived experience. Mm. But a part of my lived experience is eating ackee and saltfish in the morning, mm. you know, and coming home and having fresh ginger bulla that my grandmother made. Ginger bulla is like a ginger cake, mm. you know. Okay. You know, so and having fresh ginger bulla when I come home from school that she put a slice of cheese on for us. It's learning the Jamaican national anthem and the Jamaican motto that we are out of many one people and knowing that there are three counties in Jamaica and her telling me stories about uh, Anansi, you know, mm-hmm. the, I, I don't know if you know about Anansi, but mm-hmm. if you ever watched American Gods, have you heard, heard of that show? I have heard of it. I like, yeah, I haven't watched the character it. On, so those who are listening, if they, if they listen, then Mr. Nancy is Anansi from, mm-hmm. West, is a West African um character like mm. there's a lot of folklore folklore character mm. and in jamaica there are a lot of anansi stories so we learned anansi stories and we learned jamaican folk songs and my father was a reggae musician like that's very much a part of my lived experience as well and so when i think about racism and talk about racism i i'm not just thinking about it from the american context i'm also thinking about the experience of my mother and father my mother working several jobs and starting several businesses and never, never really achieving the American dream of being financially stable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And seeing my father become a millionaire from starting uh, J- Jamaican restaurants in Atlanta and mm. lose it all, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I've seen an immigrant experience in America and also learning about the history of racism means also learning about the history of British imperialism, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, you couldn't, I don't think you could... Let me not make it a competition because I'm going to say I don't think you could pick a better example. Mm. What I'll say is that Jamaica itself as an island is more important to world history than anybody seems to know and realize. Mm. Um, And when you're coming from a Caribbean perspective on this too, you also begin to see uh, a bit of the ways that the different places that were colonized by Britain were in relationship to one another and you can start to put together this, the, you can start to put together, put together, I said together because I've been speaking, <laughs> right, no, no. Speak, speaking pata with yeah. my family. So. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I want to sound more Jamaican, actually, you know, so. Yeah, um, so that works, it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so anyway, I was, what I was saying was that there, you can begin to see how racism is not just this interpersonal emotional thing, but it is a global system, right? Yeah. That, and, and that trade and capitalism and all these things are bound up in the history of racism in a very clear way. And the history of reggae music, mm. the history and Jamaica's history is very much, is very important to that. So 
I'm not saying everyone needs to take like a course in Jamaican history, but this this could be a gateway. So I can say more about that, you know, if you yeah. like. Yeah, I, I mean, I would love to hear anything that you want to talk about. So go go in whatever direction you want. I can tie this together. Perfect. Right? So something that I have been really looking at as I look into the history of my ancestry, mm-hmm. because my ancestry begins in Jamaica. My mother's bloodline begins in a parish called Westmoreland in Jamaica. There's a very famous tourist city there called Negril, where people go. There's a place called Rick's Cafe. It's right Mm -hmm. on the water. People jump off the cliffs into the water from Rick's Cafe. Mm -hmm. My mother's bloodline begins in that parish, and it begins between a Scottish slaveholder and an African, a Scottish slaveholder named Penny Cook Mm -hmm. and an African woman named Bidda. And that's where they began. So as I look back into my ancestry, I've I've been thinking a lot about um, imperialism because Jamaica, Jamaica was one of those islands in the Caribbean that was easier for the British to cultivate, Mm. uh, cultivate plantation uh, land, right? Okay. what a lot of people don't realize is that the transatlantic slave trade did not originally come straight to where we live in the U.S. Right. It went to the Caribbean and it went to Brazil. Mm-hmm. So the triangular trade was from Europe to the Caribbean to Brazil and back to Europe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Yep. Because so uh, in America, every America is always the center of the world. Remember, <laughs> the, col- yeah. the colonies, the 13 colonies weren't even on the map yet. Right. right. Spain colonized Jamaica first Mm. and they enslaved people there. They tried to enslave um, Taino or Arawak people. These are indigenous people. And, you know, eventually the world got, or Europeans, not the world, Europeans got the idea that Africans would make better, you know, um, better laborers, better slaves, better enslaved people. Mm. And so, so you have these, you have these, these, so now the British comes and they fight with Spain and they start, they try to take over Jamaica mm-hmm. and they want to re-enslave African fugitives, right? Because some of these Africans broke away, but these African people went up into the mountains in Jamaica, into Blue Mountain. And they were so, they were so, uh, they were so familiar with the terrain. They learned the terrain so well that they were able to fight off the British. The wow. British weren't able to bring them back down from the mountains. Mm. There's one, there's a, there's a national hero. Her name is Nanny, Queen Nanny of the Maroons, mm. right? And she was one of the leaders of these Jamaican Maroons who fought the British and won. Yeah. My father is a descendant of the Maroons. Mm. So, um, so the other thing that, the other thing when I think, so, sorry, sorry, let me just say more about this. So, yeah, go for it. All right. So they couldn't they couldn't get all the maroons out of the mountains, but they still were able to keep some African fugitives and they were able to import more. Mm. Now, Jamaica became the British, the British's cash cow of a colony for a while Mm. from the production of sugar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So that they could sweeten their tea in Britain Mm. and eventually the colonies. Mm -hmm. Now, in the colonies. They, they set things up this way in a kind of funny way because 
the Europeans, the European colonizers, the settlers, will come, the settlers were saying that the Jamaicans' heat was too intense for them. They can't work the land by themselves. This is one of their justifications for having African slaves work the fields, mm. right? That they're saying that we have the genetic makeup for it, mm. right? Yeah. All right, so they wanted to they wanted to use as much of the land that they were living on to produce sugarcane so that they could sell sugar. So they weren't create so they weren't they weren't keeping enough of the land in Jamaica to feed themselves. So they would get supplies from the colonies, the 13 colonies in North America mm. to down and sustain the settlers, right? So now you're seeing this relationship between Jamaica, the 13 colonies and Britain itself, wow. right? Yeah. And these and these settlers, if you read their actual works, they would they wrote constantly and this is why, you know, the whole notion that, well, they were people of their time and they didn't know any better is bullshit because they would write constantly about how this, so, well, let's say one, one settler, I can't remember his name right now, but if you just Google the quote, you'll see, he said, we know that this trade is brutal, mm. but it is a necessary one. It's yeah. a necessary one. Yeah. And this was a common sentiment amongst, amongst settlers where they, they acknowledged often that they were doing something heinous to African people, but they kept saying it was necessary. And if you read Eric Williams' book, Capitalism and Slavery, they say over and over again, we can't abolish slavery. Mm. We, can't, we can't abolish it because we depend on it too much. Yep. And you can see why they would say that. They've already, they've already developed so much of the land for, for profit in Jamaica that they can't live off of it, right? Yep. Yeah. And the and the goods that they're getting to sustain the settlers are coming from the colonies. So the colonies need that money too, mm. right? And this money is going back into Britain to build their banks and to build their textile companies to as the foundation of their insurance companies and all this kind of stuff. So the engine of this imperial economy is very much enslavement, right? Yeah. Yeah. When we think of enslavement, we tend to only think about the cotton fields of the South. We don't think about the sugar plantations of Jamaica. No. Right? No. Well, but, but without the sugar plantations of Jamaica, Britain could not have become great <laughs> the way right. that it claimed. Right, right, right. Okay, now Britain colonized Jamaica until 1962. Wow. My mother wow. and my father were in Jamaica the day that Jamaica was no longer a British colony. Wow. And that black, green, and gold flag that everybody sees now, that was incorporated then in 1962 in mm. their lifetime, wow. right? Now, when, when, when Europeans, and I'm going to say it this way because a similar thing happened in America, is that when they end slavery in Jamaica, they don't give reparations to the slaves. They don't make sure that the right. slaves can, to the formerly enslaved, sorry, that they can stand on their own two feet. You know, they have laws that make it illegal. First off, they already had laws that made it illegal for black people to read and write and to speak their indigenous languages, just like they did in America. Because guess what? It's all Britain. It was all the British Empire. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All Americans did. All Americans were were British people who rebranded themselves. Yes. Right. Yes. They were British people who took on a new name mm -hmm. and they kept the logic of British imperialism and they turned that into manifest destiny. And then 
move that British imperialism all the way across the um, the North American continent and then into the South Pacific when they start um, uh, colonizing the Philippines and occupying Hawaii and all these other places, right? Yeah, yeah. But th this came from the British, and that's why we and that's why when we talk about racism. We're talking about really living in the wake of British imperialism. Mm. When we talk about systemic racism, yeah. we're talking about the colonial system that they established yeah. and the logic thereof. Mm -hmm. The British British imperialism put the system in systemic racism. Mm. So anyway, um, Jamaica just, oh, I think Britain. Yeah, Britain just finished paying reparations to the slaveholders' families in 2015. Mm. In 2015, they just finished paying reparations God. to the slaveholders' families. Which means all this poverty in Jamaica, right? They could have been solved by Britain already, right? Because a long time ago. It, a long time ago. It yeah. was already it was already occasioned by Britain because Britain was uh, controlling this economy and you know um the kind of plantation, the development of the land that happens in these kind of plantation uh, colonies, it actually ruins the soil. It actually, it actually is destructive to the soil, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, you had those years of you had you had those centuries where Jamaica was a colony, and that was partly how they became impoverished. And then when when a colonial parent kind of uh, gives the colony their independence, they don't. They don't participate in reparation or development of that colony. And so they leave Jamaica in 1962 without any help. Hmm. Um, now, there was talk about Jamaica becoming a democratically a democratic socialist state, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a world superpower in the world that doesn't like that word socialism. <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden, the CIA shows up in Jamaica. Oh, my God. And all of a sudden, there's all these guns in Kingston. Mm. There were not a bunch of gunfights in Jamaica before the mid '60s, mm. right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the it wasn't until the American CIA mysteriously shows up in Jamaica after after there's talk about socialism in the Caribbean, yeah, that the CIA shows up and their guns showing up in Kingston, mm. right? Yeah. Now around just. 30 years before that, Haile Selassie was crowned his imperial majesty in Ethiopia. And there was a Jamaican preacher who had been deported from America because of his preaching about black, black liberation and racial justice by mm. the name of Marcus Garvey. Yes. He'd been, he had been deported back to Jamaica because he was causing up too much of a stir. He yeah. had a million black people following him mm. up as a part of his UNIA um, organization the Black Star Line, trying to get people back to Africa and all these people. And Marcus Garvey said that one day a king would rise up in Africa. Now, this would have been remarkable because a lot of Africa was still under colonization by the British, by France, by these other European countries. Mm -hmm. So when his, so when Haile Selassie is crowned emperor in in Ethiopia 30 years, uh, af uh, 30 years after, uh, actually, actually it was Leonard Howell who was in Jamaica preaching about this. Mm. Um, when, uh, no, 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 sorry, 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 sorry. It was Haile Selassie was crowned in 1938. Okay. Right? So this is where Rastafarianism begins to emerge. Mm -hmm. is, a, is because Leonard Howell sees this event and he says, hey, Marcus Garvey said this was going to happen, that a king was going to be crowned in Africa. Mm. Haile Selassie is that king that Marcus Garvey uh, prophesied about, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And now 
there are these people who are there. They're giving praise to this emperor who has been crowned in Ethiopia, and that's where Rastafarianism comes in. Mm -hmm. Now let's fast forward back into the 1960s. Britain is out. There are guns in Jamaica now. Mm -hmm. There's the CIA is there, and the Rastafarian people are actually being persecuted in Jamaica, right? Because the Rastafarians kind of look at the, they're looking at the remnants of the imperial system in Jamaica, right? Because Britain might have left, but but Britain shaped Jamaica's common sense. Right, right. Right? There are still laws on the books that came directly from British colonizers. Mm. And there are ideas about what it means to be, to look and dress and speak and behave respectably that come directly from white supremacy. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Rastafarian people are saying, no, we don't care about all that. And that's why they're wearing locks. You know, they call dreadlocks because white people said that we looked dreadful mm. right, in them. Mm. Right. And so they said, OK, fine. It's the same thing that we did with the N word. They said, OK, you think these are dreadful. We're going to grow them as long as and nasty as and natty as we want them to be. And, you know, that's what's that's going to be a symbol of pride for us. Yes. All right. So they're being persecuted in 1962. And ska music had come in and Rocksteady had come in, but then that's where reggae music begins to come in. Mm. It becomes it becomes the music of expression for these persecuted of persecuted black people. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And they are singing about, you know, the influence of the white church. Because remember, it was the Pope that was writing permission slips for these colonizers to go around the world and genocide people and enslave people and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. that legacy over the hundreds of years had still been you know, used and weaponized against black people to try to keep them under control. So yeah. they're singing about the influence of the church. They're mm -hmm. singing about the corruption of government. They're singing about the violence that's going on. They're singing about poverty. It comes out of the ghettos of Kingston, right? Mm -hmm. My father was there. <laughs> My wow. father, the reggae musician, was there in Jamaica when this was happening. Wow. Right? Mm. And so, you know, that's all of that comes out of it. So I guess, I mean, that was a very long history lesson. I love it. Know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I mean, that's what we're here for. That's what this is. <laughs> that's, that's what this is about today. But that's where, it, that's where it comes from. And so, like, for me yeah. going back and, like, really reconnecting to my roots because, you know, leaving America and deciding, you know, I want to go live in Jamaica where my family is from. Yeah. I've been to Jamaica many times as a child. We went back every other year because my mother always made sure that we knew about our Jamaican heritage. Yeah. But I wasn't sure that it was something that I could claim for myself, really. Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Like my mom one time said to me after I, I, it was a song I wrote in high school. She said, I could tell that you're Jamaican from that song, right? Mm. And I forgot about her saying that until she passed in 2017. When she passed in 2017, I, I had a handful of songs I wanted to record. And I also called up my dad because I told you my dad is a reggae musician. He was also an anti-imperialist activist, yeah. you know, yeah. and because um, he grew up in that in that season, sure. you know, it's very, very much a part of it. And um, he had a, he had a song called Angela that he wanted me to sing. He always wanted me to sing it. And when my mom passed, I said, you know what, I will not allow for when my father passes, for me to stand up at his funeral and say, and he always wanted me to sing reggae music and he always wanted me to sing his song, Angela, and I never did. Mm -hmm. So I called my dad and I said, hey, I wanna sing Angela. And he sent me Angela and he had another song called Super Dread. 
when I said, yeah, well, yeah, let me sing, let me, send me Super Dread as well. And, you know, I always thought it was, I, I always liked Super Dread because the first two lines are really funny to me. I mean, they're rebellious and they're funny to me. It sounds just like my dad, but there's also the spirit of the Maroons who chase the British out of the mountains because that's a favorite of my father. He always tells that story. He's very proud to be descended from the Maroons. Yes. And he is also the anti-imperialist activist, the black radical philosopher. And um, But so what he kept saying was, Andre, you know, you have to talk about what's going on in the world, but you have to make it accessible and you have to make it fun for people to listen to. Hmm. And so Super Dread was supposed to be really fun, but I didn't feel like I could relate to all the lyrics. So I took his first two lines and then I wrote the, I rewrote it. And that's why it's called Super Dread 2 on the future. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I know that song, but it's called Super Dread 2. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Super Dread 2 is my version yes. of my dad's song. Oh, okay. You know? So those first two lines were not living in your fantasy, mm -hmm. your Daffy Duck and your Bugs Bunny. Those oh, are that, my dad's lines. That's right? awesome. And I, and, I, <laughs> and I took it from there. Yeah. Right? And I wrote that song dur like during the 2016 election. Yep. Yeah. I was very much thinking about Donald Trump and writing about that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long story short, you know, of all of that, you know, history and me reclaiming that and embracing that is um, me getting comfortable in a tradition of music that has always always been a place that has been accessible and pleasing to the ear and something you can dance to and stuff like that. I think that's important, but has always also stood up to imperialism, to authoritarianism and white supremacy, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's a part of that tradition. Mm. Um, and it took me a long time to find a genre where I felt like I could bring my whole self you know, mm, it, yeah. ju it just so happens to be where it just so happens to be home, right? You go, yeah, you go searching the world and you find out that the place for you is home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's how it is when it's when home is meaningful and it's such a big part of who you are. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so that's why, you know, people, I, I really say, you know, there's a lot of different styles of reggae music and you have folks, you have reg American folks make reggae music, yeah. British folks make reggae music, mm -hmm. um, Filipino folks make reggae music. There's mm -hmm. there's a version of reggae music that I think we can all get into. So, yeah. you know, if the, if, the 19th, if the mid 60s Jamaican reggae music isn't speaking to you because, <laughs> because you're not experiencing ghetto oppression. I mean, <laughs> you know... <laughs> You know, there's probably a, there's probably a version out there for for everyone, I'm but it's sure. it's much more meaningful music than I think people realize, yeah. and it's and it's much more connected to black liberation than most people realize. I mean, I think reggae music in itself is a form of anti-racism work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and a part of that anti-racism work is not just you know uh, chanting down Babylon, you know, but a part of that anti-racism work is just also giving black people music that they can enjoy mm, right mm -hmm. that also is telling the truth about the anti-black world that they live in yeah you know? yeah and i think that's the beautiful thing about a song like bob marley's jamming or or um chant down babylon and even you know i would say like the new version of it doesn't have to be this way you know? like, yeah think, yeah like it's 
there is so much in that song that it captures my six years of activism, mm. a lot of my studies, a lot of the a lot of the reading that I've done to sustain myself. Mm-hmm. You know, when I have felt depressed and overwhelmed about our prospects about freedom or just or just the violence that the routine violence of living in an anti-black world. Mm-hmm. You know, that second verse I just told someone, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, I think it was in Twitter space out mm-hmm. the Twitter space I did yesterday. <clears throat> the second verse of this song, you know, we are like gods and don't even know it. Uh, whatever we do becomes history. They may have the guns, but we have the poets. The future will be whatever we sing. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. that is that it. That is six years of studying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's six years of studying. It's six years of organizing. It's six years of looking at this injustice in the face and trying every day to fight against it, mm-hmm. you know, that is packed into the, those 30 seconds, mm-hmm. right? And to a beat that hopefully people will dance to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I wanna go back to something that you said and, and when you said it's to a beat that hopefully people will dance to, it made me think of this. Um, so, a few minutes ago, you said um, that you think the existence of, of reggae music is its own sort of anti-racism work. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, is so true because I, I'm thinking about the way that I was um, taught music was very, yeah. you know, obviously like Eurocentric, right? Yep. Um, like straight beat, like you have your downbeat and that's the emphasized beat and that's the, you know, what you're doing. And it mm-hmm. has to go in this particular way and the rhythm is, you know, such and such and blah, blah, blah. Everything is straight yeah. time. Everything is just this way. Uh, and reggae music is not like that. We, you know, mm-hmm. y- you have the emphasis on the up stroke and on the upbeat instead of on the downbeat and you have this very different sort of rhythm and and even melodies and harmonies are very different than than like our eurocentric ways Mm -hmm. of of thinking about music and of of learning music um it's very subversive to that it's completely opposite right Of, of so many things that we're taught in you know sort of this it, like in white music basically yeah. um and mm-hmm. it's it is it, it it is a a pushback um onto our way our our white way of understanding music yeah. yeah i mean so this is like connected to me for even just when we talk about patwa right mm-hmm. so i grew up around people that speak patwa my yeah. grandmother only spoke patwa and all that, but I didn't. Cha- I didn't speak Patois when I was young, <clears throat> not really. So I, I knew it. I knew it because I heard it all the time. I could understand it, but didn't have a lot of practice. So when I was moving back to Jamaica, I decided, okay, I want to really speak Patois. And in Jamaica, we don't say we speak Patois. We chat Patois. Right? Uh, so yeah. I said, I really want to chat. I really want. I really want to chat Patois. I talked to my dad about it and I said, hey, dad, from now on, whenever we talk, could we chat Patois exclusively? Mm. I don't want to 
talking talk, talk English anymore. And he said, and he said, yeah, man, yeah, yeah man, we can't chat patwa. To chat, for chat patwa, I feel we freedom, freedom mm. right? Uh, so for those who didn't follow that at all, it's, he said to, to speak patwa is freedom for yeah, us, yeah. right? And I didn't understand what he was saying. But the more that I chat patwa, the more that I understand, because it is not, it's not the queen's English. Right. 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 Now, why is it not the queen's English? There are some people who will tell you that the reason why Patois is the way that it is, they say it's bastardized English or it's broken oh. English or whatever. Oh. And they say that because they believe that, you know, the African people couldn't speak English, couldn't speak the queen's English. Mm. Like, well, that couldn't possibly be true because if Africans can speak the queen's English now, then they must have been able to do it then. Right. <laughs> right? right. They could have. Yeah. But I don't think so. I think that, honestly, I think I think that these uh, enslaved and tortured, terrorized people did not want to speak just like their oppressors. Right. They learned enough mm -hmm. to communicate with their oppressors. Mm -hmm. And then they created their own language so oh. they could really communicate with one another. Yes. Right? And this allowed them to plan revolutions right in front of their oppressor's face, mm. because because the the settler is saying these dumb Africans can't speak the Queen's English, mm. and they don't, and it doesn't even occur to them that if understanding someone else's language is a measure of intelligence, then they have just implicated themselves for not being intelligent enough to understand patois. Uh, yep. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're so dumb and lazy. Yes, I did call them dumb and lazy. <laughs> yeah. That they didn't even bother trying to learn. Yes. The language of their captives mm. because they didn't believe that their captives were smart enough to have to create a language that they couldn't understand. Yeah. So anyway, um, the 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 reason why I'm talking about this in the through the analogy of patwa is that the more that I the more that I chat patwa is the more that I understand that I am breaking the rules yeah. of English mm -hmm. and whose and whose language is that mm. yeah it's not it's not Bida's language right Right. Like for those who forgot, Bida is my first ancestor in Jamaica, right? Mm -hmm. That is not the language that she spoke when she when she arrived on the shores of Jamaica, yeah. right? Yeah. So who cares if I break the rules mm. of whoever imposed this language on her? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, Trans Fanon says in his book Black Skin White Mass, because he was also Caribbean, mm -hmm. and for those who don't know, Trans Fanon was a psychiatrist and philosopher and his books the wretched of the earth black skin white white mask <clears throat> were foundational texts for the black radical tradition malcolm x was inspired by them um the black panthers were inspired by them all this kind of stuff so france Fanon says in his book black skin white mask he says that the more french an antillian speaks the whiter he becomes hmm. because language comes with a worldview right there is a logic that is underlying a language right mm -hmm. and um so when i speak when i chat patois i understand that 
I am mangling up the colonizer's language on purpose. Mm -hmm. And this kind of embodied rebellion feels delicious to me, right? And I also understand that I am breaking with I'm breaking with the logic that is implied by the colonizer's grammar. And I am also connecting with my ancestors because in Patwa there are words like, all right, so we don't say you all, right? The word when we want to say like you plural is una. Mm. So we say something like, you know, you know, what are Uno doing, right? That's mm. not really Pato. I'm just, I just put a Pato word in English so that right. you could understand the rest of the sentence. Right. But, you know, if I said it in Pato, I'd say something like, what Uno I do, right? Mm. Uno is, a Igbo, is an Igbo word. Mm. So that word made it all the way from 1400 something down to 2020 to me, yeah. right? Yeah. And every time I chat Patwa, I'm communing with my ancestors, right? Mm. So there is this. There, I, so I, I know that this got very philosophical. And wait, you're you're a linguist. I'm so a linguist, so I'm loving every minute of this. It's yeah. music so, to my ears. <laughs> but this this thing to me, it speaks to me in a way because I realize that a lot of white people don't realize that black people have an entire world without them. Yeah. They don't realize that. Right? We have an entire world that is ours. It's a world that we know because of our shared experience of anti black persecution, mm -hmm. right? And white people can't know it because they've never lived it, right? Right. The white people love to say we're all the same. We're all just human beings and da 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 da. Mm. But, but white people have never lived in the world that we live in, right? right? right. And that world is not all bad. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the world that white people pick from, you know, when they say things like, yes, queen. Right. And yeah. they're borrowing from they're borrowing from a from a black queer, you know, uh, world yeah. that they'll never inhabit. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It's white men now trying to analyze and pontificate about what it means to be woke. But they will never know wokeness. They'll never be able to analyze it and break it apart and understand it because you have to be black to understand what it actually means to be a woke person. Yeah. Because wokeness is the same thing that Rastafarians are appealing to in different language when they talk about in the legacy of the vestiges of imperialism, even the police themselves and the government as Babylon. That's dread talk or woke talk, right? <clears throat> so you know, what you're talking about, like, in reggae music, like, even saying, like, you know, there are things that happen in the music, in reggae music, the drummer will do something one time. Yeah. And that's the only time that it happens in the record, right? Mm -hmm. Or when you listen to Bob Marley's phrasing, you'll think that he would have re he would have repeated that, that, that chorus or that refrain, because that's how it usually sounds on a pop record. But no, he's not going to do it that way. Mm. Or he comes in on a different beat, you know, mm -hmm. reggae music, is like Patwa in that way to me because it is breaking the rules. It, it The center of gravity is in a different place, right? Yeah. It's not a Eurocentric art form. And this is a kind of embodied, you know, black experience. And the fact, and whenever black people are being confidently black and unashamed, it's also an act of rebellion, yeah. right? Yeah. So like our anti-racism work, I think people have this very linear and uh, come, 
this very commodified way of thinking of anti-racism work where anti-racism work means you set up a Patreon and you write a workbook for white people to reflect on what it means for them to be white and try to be better people. Mm -hmm. And God bless the people who do that, right? Mm -hmm. But black people, you know, for us to just go ahead and enjoy the abundance that there is in blackness, right? That is our birthright, right? And in that way, that's a type of fugitivity Right, that we have from white supremacy, where we say we will not be gaslighted by the white world and we will not submit to the thing that it wants for us to do, which is to be is to shut up about the violence that we experience, to grin and bear it, mm. to 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 tap dance for them, for mm. their entertainment and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we are gonna create our own spaces where we can have joy and we can have pleasure and we can have delight and we're gonna tell the truth about our experiences and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And in a way that is what we're taught that in a way like this is a tradition that we get from people like the Maroons who, you know, they fought off the British and created their own societies in the mountains of Jamaica. And to this day, Maroons live in Jamaica in their own uh, settlements Mm. that are not under the Jamaican government. Mm. They have their own laws in Maroon towns in Jamaica. Wow. (laughs) Because it descends from that, it descends from that place, yeah. right? So even the Jamaican police can't go into Mar- into a maroon town and think that they're going to do whatever they're going to do because that yeah. badge does not have does not carry the same authority in yeah. a maroon town that it does in a Jamaican town. Hmm. The maroon towns are like a nation within a nation, right? Wow, that's so amazing. That's what I love about reggae music, but honestly. Mm-hmm there's a part of that that is just a part of black life right mm-hmm. like a couple of years ago when i was in a relationship i'm not in a relationship anymore but i i remember being very intentional about finding a black partner mm-hmm. at the time because i was reading a lot of afro pessimist literature and um you know one of the one of the key points that they make in afro pessimist uh or this particular afro pessimist work was talking about how non-black people oftentimes find themselves siding with uh, white people in Mm -hmm. Mm anti-blackness and so um i was dating this woman and she uh you know she she's black and we're sitting down at this restaurant and the waiter at the bartender he was also black and i can't remember i can't i can't tell you what was said all i can tell you is that there was this moment where there was where something happened and we made a reference to something that only we black people would understand. And it was like, we just like dropped into another plane of existence where we were communing together and we were laughing together Yeah. and no one could be in that space because they didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Like we have that, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that we have, a lot of people who are not black understand that we have that. Mm. You know, and we cherish that. And I mean, people can people can experience that to agree to a degree. Like you can be present to it because you can listen to reggae music, right? Right. <laughs> so right. you can listen to reggae music, and you can be like, well, I can't really, I can't really like jump inside of this and get yeah. it, you know, because I'm, you know, because I'm a white woman from the Midwest. I'm sorry, <laughs> I just gendered you. That's okay. You're fine. What your, pronoun, what your pronouns are? Um, um, you know, I can't enter it in the same way that a black person can, but you can be present to it, you can appreciate it. But that is something that we have. And while I'm on that point, I think that it's important for white people to understand, like, this is what we're talking about. 
I think to an extent when we talk about appropriation, right? Yeah. It's about appreciating that that is there and admiring it, but also knowing that like, this is not about you. Mm. Don't interrupt this space. Don't censor yourself in this space. Don't take from this space, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in a selfish way, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Everything that you're saying right now reminds me of um, a line from an, another musician that I, I really admire, another black musician that I, yeah. I love listening to, who is uh, Micah Bournet. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, his his song, um, it's, it's like the last line of his song, Too Much. And yeah. uh, he's talking about like not being too much and not being too black and not being too loud and not being too, too much. Um, And at the, at the beginning of this verse, he says, my people be feisty. Don't tell us to ask nicely. Uh And the very last couple lines, he says, we know how to flip a war zone to a feast, how to inhale, hate, exhale with peace. And Mm. that's such a, everything that you're saying about black community and black, experiences and being able to relate in your community in a way that you know we white people will never be able to understand and like like you said dropping into that other plane of existence we we can't go there um and and it's making me think specifically of that line that like it's it's not it's it's not joy because of everything that has been experienced it's joy in spite of it it's it's we're flipping everything upside down and just like patois just like reggae music where you're turning it and you're sharing this beautiful communal experience right yeah yeah i mean you know honestly and this is this brings me back to something we talked about earlier right like Mm -hmm. i love that song for instance chant down babylon yeah right yeah because when i listen to it like I know I know what Babylon means, yeah. right? Yeah. Babylon is this entire oppressive system. It's the it's the remnants of imperialism and colonization, you know, yeah. the or the enduring legacy of of those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's all those things, right? Mm-hmm. So when I and that means something to me, especially as someone who sometimes like when the police are driving behind me, I get really nervous mm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I I know about that, right? Yeah. But I love that the melody is come chant down Babylon one more time, mm-hmm. right? It's so happy right? yeah like, yeah that feels good to me right yeah and as a black person living in this anti-black world i need major melodies right mm. i need melodies in a major key even if they're singing about burning down babylon yeah. you know because the world is already stressful enough for me yes right <laughs> so this is something i had to learn about my own music is that like when you listen to people of the world, minor key, very heavy, mm. not very catchy, you know, beautiful, mm-hmm. not very, but, but, you know, that, mm. like, I had to learn even as I talked to my, my, even as I talked to other black people that they're like, yeah, I like the music, mm-hmm. you know, and it's good, but it's heavy. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Like mm. I am, ex- I am expressing myself, but at the end of the day, like my friend Tina doesn't want to put on people of the world as she does yoga by the pool. She's a she's a black queer woman. Right, right. You know, living in a world where literally no place is safe for her. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? And so, you know, 
she needs if if we're gonna sing about you know that kind of thing like it needs to be something that she can enjoy mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and that enjoyment is justified in a way that i just i have a hard time respecting for people who are listening to bob marley's music but aren't but have no awareness of the context yeah. no idea what he's saying yeah. and are just like yeah, let's just put this on at the barbecue because it's all peace mm. and love. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. to me, that's that Justin Timberlake tweet when someone tried to tell him about racism and he said, oh, sweetie, don't you know we're all the same? Like, no. Uh, 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 <laughs> no. No. <laughs> you know? Ooh. So anyway, yeah. I just thought to your point, like, I think that's the that's the thing about entering that, you know, with, um, I think really with any Black art is for people to realize, like, it's fine for you to enjoy like Cardi B's music and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and Meg The Stallion and all that, but also respect that when Meg The Stallion wants to get on SNL and she wants to shout out Breonna Taylor, like that's always been a part of black art and our black tradition as black artists. And it's always gonna be yeah. as long as we live in an anti-black world, right? Yeah. And so this is a way that people, I think, I was just thinking about this earlier, earlier today. Mm that when when black people have been saying listen to black people for years right yeah and when we say that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to sit down cross leg you know crisscross applesauce in front of some your your black friend Mm. and now they're going to systematically explain racism to you i don't think that that's what like listen to black people means Mm. i mean use your critical thinking skills Mm -hmm. and engage right like black art engage um listen yes yes read some theory yes listen to some lectures on youtube yes read some books about the history of racism but watch some black directed tv and and film and cinema and think about the depictions of life Mm -hmm. in the white world from black people just think about them talk about them reflect on them what does this di- what is this director telling us mm-hmm. about what it looks like to live in a black body in this world right mm-hmm. and they may not even be creating that piece of art to to tell to break down in some theoretical way something about racism but our lived experiences in this world are being communicated through these mediums right mm-hmm. so like what would it look like for white people to engage like you know, like you said, like you engaged reggae music, you know, um, in a deep way, in a deeper way than you have, you know. Yeah, ever. I was going to say, uh, deeper yeah. than I ever have, but I wouldn't yeah. say. <laughs> like, I tried, but it wasn't, uh, I couldn't drop into that plane of existence. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you've engaged in it a deeper way than you ever have. Yeah. And that is, and I think that really is, you know, I think that, I think that when we say listen to black people, that that's a huge part of this, right? It's like. Mm. It's not even always about this direct transactional or even this capitalistic way of, in, of listening to black people where people join my mailing list and think now I'm their anti-racism concierge mm. and I'm supposed to deliver like something to them every week for their betterment or their consumption. Yeah. Like actually no, like I'm doing this as self-defense, right? Yes. And so if you and so if you're serious about listening to black people, you should also be you should also consider like listening to the song, right? Mm-hmm. Like listening to Red and Blue. Yes. And I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you how racism works in Red and Blue, but I'm telling you how racism works. Right. 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 
because I'm not going to tell you, like, I can break down, like, this global system of white, white, <laughs> white imperialism that we're still living, <laughs> living mm-hmm, under, mm-hmm. like I did in the past two hours. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like, you're not going to get that kind of lesson in Red and Blue. But right. in Red and Blue, you can listen to me tell you in the second verse, you can tell them about your degrees, yeah, by volunteering on the weekend. Anything you can think of, save your neck, bro. Don't let his knee touch him. Tell him your daddy's a deacon. Send him pics of your nephews and nieces. We all know you's a king, bro. But all he sees is a negro in them red and blue, red and blue, red and blue flashing lights. That melanin you're carrying is a crime. So 10 and 2, 10 and 2, 10 and 2, God, your life. Life in black and white. I didn't just pull that out of thin air. That's my life. Right. I experienced that Mm. in the world. That's how I know those things. Mm. When I sing those things, it's like I'm talking to my nephew Mm. and I'm telling him, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how good of a person you are. When they pull you over, what they see is that melanin content in your skin. So just survive the encounter. And I learned that from living in the world. And you don't need to text me. You don't need me to respond to your Twitter comment. Hmm. You don't need for me to be your best friend or anything like that. You don't, all you need to do is just listen and ask the question, how does Andre know that? Mm. Yeah. And it's because I'm 36 years old. And I've lived in this, and I've lived in this anti-black world yeah. all my life, yeah. and I know it. I know it that well to where I can predict what it's going to do most of the time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and if we listen to black people in that way, you know, or if non-black people listen to black people in that way, I think it saves black people a lot of energy, and I think it's going to go a lot further than people expecting to be spoon spoon-fed, you know all this information about racism. I think about like, you know, when I have been in certain contexts with, you know, older black women and sitting down at the table and really just listening to them talk, right? Mm. And not not cutting in, not contributing anything, not trying to, you know, just just really like listening and hearing. And I hear, okay, I'm gonna connect this to a social movement story. This is kind of how like the feminist movement began in America was, or the second, sorry, second wave feminism was through these consciousness raising groups, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, these these women were sitting down and just talking about their lives together. And, and what do you know? Men had been gaslighting them <laughs> about, <laughs> about how their unhappiness yeah. was actually not just some kind of personal deficiency, deficiency that mm-hmm. each of them had as individuals, mm-hmm. but actually part of some larger collective struggle because their their personal suffering was impacted by systemic forces, right? Yeah. So when you as a person who does not belong to that marginalized group have the opportunity, the fortunate opportunity to be able to just listen to people who are marginalized in a way that you aren't, just talk about their experience in life, it's like you're getting to eavesdrop on one of those consciousness raising groups. Yeah. If you're willing to shut up and listen, right? Yeah. And you and you can start to discern the patterns for yourselves. Wow, like these these folks are, you know, having these encounters. So anyway, yeah. No, that's I think, what it made me think of. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's a great and and really important point to make. I th- I think that it's something that like, I mean, you're so right. For a long time, like I I and I still catch myself doing it. Right, like this, like, well, tell me, tell me, <laughs> like the Sharon Osbourne moment. Well, tell me. Just well, explain me. it to me. Right. Tell me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, and and uh, and it's not the same. Uh, but it it ori- it's, it originates, I think, in a similar uh, structure, or or perhaps in the same structure, where if you're anything other than a cisgendered, able-bodied white man, mm-hmm. affluent white man, right? Mm-hmm. Then there then then there's an issue, right? Um, and there are different experiences and intersections of that. Yeah. But um, someone a couple a couple years ago, um, I have some chronic illnesses, and a couple years ago, I was at a wrestling clinic with my daughter, and I was having like a flare up of one of these chronic illnesses, and um, it I I was there, and one of the other. Um, wrestler's uh, dad was there and he noticed me like doubled over in pain and he kept asking me like are you okay and I was like I'm fine and he was like but are you okay and I was like I'm fine please leave me alone you know Um, and he said what's wrong and I was like I can't explain that to you right now Mm, right mm -hmm. and he was like just tell me just tell just me. tell me and i sw- right. i was like i swear to god i'm going to punch you in the face if you ask me to right. just explain this right. to you one right. more time because i can't explain this right. to you and right. and what they don't understand is that as a person with a marginal with some marginalized identity yeah you're triggered in that moment <laughs> right you're triggered, which means that your higher functioning rational brain isn't even online no, at the moment. No, no, right, right. So, so you're literally asking someone to do something <laughs> <laughs> that they are not that that they are not in the best position neurologically to do. Right, <laughs> right. And and again, it is it is different. But wh- but yeah. when I began to like sort of connect the dots. Um, the more the more that I experience those things, the yeah. more um, the more I think, aha, this is not this is not the same, but it yeah. is a way for me to say, hmm, there are other people who have less privilege than I do, who hold more marginalized identities than I do, who are experiencing yep. this and, or, or who are experiencing this in another way. Um, yeah. and, and that, like you said, is, is the importance, is, is, is why it's critical for those of us who, who have a significant amount of privilege, um, particularly non-black and white people, to sit down and to say, okay, I'm going to try to refrain from interjecting and I'm going to Mm -hmm. try to listen and notice and ask myself those questions like you said of, hmm, how come everyone seems to understand what the other person is talking about? (laughs) Why why do they all know exactly what the other one is talking about? And they enthusiastically agree. Yeah. No, and that's that's a great question for people to ask themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Andre, I really want to be respectful of your time, but um, 
I want to ask one last question, if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay. So this is kind of more directly tied into um, your n- your new song that is coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you have. Uh, uh, I've listened to Future Reggae, um, and that you have been leaning into that style more and more yeah. over the years. Yeah. But. I mean, when when I listened to "It Doesn't Have to Be This Way," uh, the the newer version, excuse me, of "It Doesn't Have to Be This Way," yeah, I was like, yeah. "No, this is this is this is full reggae, but also yeah. the future, like you said." <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um, so I'm curious, like, okay, this might be two questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One, um, did you were did you um produce and create? that whole track because i know you're multifaceted musician i did like there there is no one playing on that record but me that's amazing (laughs) wow that's awesome it was actually yeah it was actually like my friend tashia actually like she really challenged me you know because future reggae to me is like a blend of like that kind of trap inflected Atlanta R&B that has yeah. a it's you know that meets reggae music because those are that's where I'm from right yeah. I grew up in Atlanta my folks are Jamaican I grew up on reggae music my heritage is Jamaican mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Tashia was like why don't you just call yourself a reggae musician and I I still think that like you could still say I do R&B and reggae music but when we talked about me doing this remix, it doesn't have to be this way. She was there actually when I got the idea mm. and she was like, just make it a reggae song. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to hire a band if I do that. And I don't have the money to do that. Mm. And then I was like, well, let's just let me try it. Right. Yeah. And uh, so what I had to do with this, you're listening to like, so when you listen to the drums in particular, right, yeah. it's not a loop, you know, the drums are not doing the same thing every mm-hmm. four bars, every eight bars. Mm-hmm. That means I had to literally like take like take a rim shot sample and place it and where I it. want it for yeah. three minutes. Yes. And do the same thing with the kick drum for three minutes. You know, yeah. but everything is so when you see the credits of this single, it's just gonna be Andre, Andre Henry. Henry. <laughs> I'm singing my background. I wrote this lyrics, I did, you know, every, everything on this particular track is just me. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Okay, so <laughs> my next question then is, um, you know, you've, you've shared about how important it was for you and how important it has been for you to reconnect with your heritage, to begin to chat patois um, yeah. with family and to live in Jamaica and to yeah. uh, begin to uh, bring more reggae influence into your music and, and to be a reggae musician. Yeah. So then, to my white ears, this sounded like the most reggae song that you have yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. So I, w- I would love to ask how that, like, what did that feel like? Uh, and and yeah. I mean that in the most basic, like, spiritual, emotional, <laughs> what did that feel like for you? Yeah, no, I mean, it is a good question because... At first, I was like, well, first, I, I didn't think I could create mm-hmm. this reggae song, mm-hmm. create this reggae vibe by myself. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, so first off, all the songs, like, from Roses While We're Young up to now mm-hmm. actually start as reggae songs. So mm-hmm. if you heard me play them on the guitar when mm-hmm. I first had the idea, they were all reggae songs. Mm-hmm. But I just produced them in such a way that they don't feel like most of them, most of them 
don't feel like reggae songs, except Super Dread and Angela. Like, those feel like the most reggae on the future reggae album. Yeah. Right? But this one was more like, okay, no, this is like one drop roots reggae. Yeah. And I haven't really produced a song like that. And so it was a little bit intimidating. It felt really good, like when I was like finally done, and I but I was really insecure about it. And so what I did, like especially when I'm working on reggae songs, I sent it to my dad because my dad, again, he's a reggae musician. He was there when it began in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. You know, he I mean he was making reggae music in Jamaica at the same time as Bob Marley. They got kicked out of the studio because Bob Marley and the Whalers were trying to get into the studio to record <laughs> that day. I mean it's that when I say that they're that close to the genesis of reggae music, I mean that's where like, yeah, <laughs> like they were there, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I sent it to my dad, and one thing about my dad is that he's not gonna lie, mm. you know, because I've sent songs to him, and he's just not gonna lie. He's not gonna he's not gonna exaggerate. Mm-hmm. I told him about it, and I and then like, well, first it took me a while to even tell him about the song, and I told him about it, and then it took me a couple weeks to send it to him because I was so nervous. <laughs> so finally, it just calls me. And he's just like, chooch. He calls me chooch. I don't know why he calls me chooch. He just has been calling me chooch my whole life. <laughs> chooch, you kill it, man. You know? Mm. And he just, he really, really loved it. And I oh. felt like so um, proud, yeah. you know, that yeah. my dad, you know, a, a, a real, like he's, he's as real as they come for me, a reggae musician, mm. like listen to it and he really believes in it. Yeah. You know, so... It was intimidating, you know, to do, but also it just feels, it just felt good. And I think that a part of what I feel when I feel trepidation around this is it wouldn't matter what genre we're talking about. Like artists don't like being blocked into a genre. Sure. So I think that's part of what I have felt. And I have also felt like we've talked a lot about reggae music today. And I think a lot of people have misconceptions about it. Sometimes mm. it feels really niche. Mm. And because people don't understand <clears throat> the many different iterations of reggae music, it can feel narrow, right? But what I've been realizing by sitting in Montego Bay and listening to what's played on the radio, listening to what people are listening to, listening to a lot of classic reggae, you know, I listened to classic reggae when I was young, but now like I'm like studying it, like I studied nonviolent struggle and like I studied systemic racism. I'm just like listening to reggae music every single day and realizing Reggae has reggae, reggae is so vast. It has so mm-hmm. many different expressions and has had so many different expressions around the world and throughout the years mm-hmm. that like it's a whole world to play in. And I think that if there's something valuable about, you know, just kind of leaning into a tradition. And I think like in our conversation, we've had kind of like this theme about like coming home and embracing mm-hmm. home. Yeah. And reggae does feel like home to me, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And I feel like when I make reggae music and when I chat patwa, I'm keeping my I'm I'm keeping my ancestors and my parents alive. Yeah. You know, like it's a way that I'm still connecting with my mom, mm. and it's a way that I'll stay connected to my dad even when he, you know, when they're when they're long gone. Yeah. So in that way, like it feels very it feels like coming home. You know. Mm. Yeah. So now my only question is, how will you know? How will folks in Jamaica receive it? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully very well. I can imagine, you know, like as family, we love it when our loved ones come home. Yes. And I, I mean, I've never been to Jamaica. I do not know a whole lot about it. But if it's anything like the way that we feel when our loved ones come home, 
I can imagine that they're going to be that that people in Jamaica are going to be very excited and happy to hear it. Yeah. 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 I hope so. Yeah. Well, Andre, uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, for having this conversation with me. It was such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, where can people find you if they want to, you know, listen to your music, support yeah. your work, anything like right. that? So my music is streaming anywhere that that music is streaming online. Uh, you can go on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, you know, all those places. Mm -hmm. And uh, my artist name is the same as my actual name. It's Andre Henry, so I'm Perfect. easy to find. Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter if you want to connect. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, also Andre Henry. Um, Andre Henry on Twitter, the Andre Henry on Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I also have a phone number up there too, so you know you can feel That's free right. to text me if you yeah. like. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And when does the when does the song come out? It comes out on Juneteenth, so June nineteenth. Awesome! Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Oh, that's very exciting. Okay, so yeah. this will this recording will be timed with uh, to be around the release of the song. Yeah. Um, so by the time people hear this, you'll be able to listen to yeah. to your new song. So that's super awesome. So exciting. Um, well, thank you again so much. I, I so appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Andre Henry, for joining me. For more of Andre's work, you can follow him on Twitter, at Andre Henry or Instagram at the Andre Henry. Links to Andre's social media, other platforms are also available in the liner notes and you can stream his music wherever you listen to your music. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening.